Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, come in, but keep your distance. I've picked up something. Maybe it's something from Canada. Maybe it was something on the plane. Maybe it's just something that was hovering around my usual places here in Chicago. Anyway, I am snuffling, I'm wheezing, and luckily still able to talk. Well, enough of my discomforts. If you stay over there, say, and I stay over here... And if your warm beverage of the evening is taken from a disposable cup, you should be fine. Anyway, I'm Lawrence Santoro. This is Tales to Terrify. And we have an excellent story for you tonight. And a song. Something to get your mind off turkey and thoughts of impending Christmas. Thoughts of just when will you watch It's a Wonderful Life this year. And the decision of which version of A Christmas Carol you'll spin up on the Blu-ray player. Or maybe you'll just sit down and read the carol live and to your family. Or to the cat, which is just too sad to contemplate, even here. Well, we're here tonight, together, with something, dare I say, completely different. Today is Black Friday here in the colonies. The turkey population has been decimated, and you are suffering from glutton's guilt, Today you fought the good fight, and you snatched a bargain or two away from your fellow predatory shopper, and if you heard last week's show, you know you have only until tomorrow, that is Saturday, November 24th, to take advantage of the Starship Sofa's Black Hole Whole Week 
sale of starship seminars and lectures. I am not going to spend my few remaining vocal trills and buzzes here telling you about what you can learn about for yourselves by just going to the website on our homepage and perusing the offers. Suffice it to say, all such items are half-priced through the 24th. So if you missed, say, the Joe Haldeman talk on how to write science fiction, there it is, half off. If you'd like to hear me, well, and others, discussing the narration of stories for fun and profit, it's there too. So go. When you get home, of course, that is, and you have access to your computing machines. And when you're there, click on the button and, ah, well, you know what to do. The book. It is selling. People like it. You want to be one of them? Of course you do. In particular, if you're one of the many people who have not gone to our site to donate a few pounds, dollars, shekels, rubles, etc., to help us keep in spiders and dust here in the nook, and statistically you most probably are one of those people who have not, then be among the happy night folk who have a copy of Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, By Their Beds. Last week, we aired a story from that book. We've already had a few others. Martin Munt's Chair, for example, is the first story we had read to us here in the nook. Joe R. Lansdale's God of the Razor. That was show two, I think. It goes on. Well, what else can I say but buy the book? And consider giving a copy or two to your darkly dreaming friends for the holidays coming. Okay? Okay. We'll jump right into fiction now, because I can barely talk. Fiction tonight is by Nina Allen. Nina was born in Jack the Ripper's old London haunting grounds, Whitechapel. She grew up in the Midlands in West Sussex and studied Russian literature at the University of Exeter and at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. While she recently moved to Hastings in East Sussex, she says that she will always be a Londoner at heart. She says her inspirations have been, and are, Vladimir Nabokov, Iris Murdoch, Joyce Carol Oates, Paul Oster, J.G. Ballard, Roberto Bolano, M. John Harrison, and Christopher Priest. I won't belabor the point. Here is Nina Allen's The Muse of Copenhagen. I dumped my hold-all on the back seat of the taxi and got in beside the driver. When I told him where I wanted to go, he seemed surprised. South Shore, he said. I thought Mr. Gauss was away. My uncle's dead, I said. He died at the weekend. I'm here to take care of the house. I thought it best to get the facts out in the open. People in small communities are invariably curious about each other. And if I tried to keep my business a secret, it would only make them gossip all the more. Everyone in St. Lawrence knew my Uncle Denny. Whether they would remember me, I was less sure. South Shore had been my home throughout my boyhood, but I hadn't been back to the house for a decade, not since Anker's funeral. Uncle Denny packed up and left soon afterwards, dividing his time between his houses in Athens and Marseille. I never questioned him about his voluntary exile. Once I was past my teens, we didn't tend to discuss our personal lives all that much. What we talked about mostly 
was stamps. After Anka's death, we didn't see each other so often either, but we kept in touch fairly regularly by letter and then later by email. He usually phoned at Christmas and on my birthday, but his last call came out of the blue. It was a bad line. I couldn't make out who it was at first. I put that down to the lousy connection, but as the conversation continued, I realised it was more than that. Uncle Denny sounded weird, furtive somehow, as if he was afraid someone might be listening in on what we were saying. He also seemed older. My uncle was getting on a bit, that was true, but he had always been fit and healthy, and the last time I saw him in a restaurant in Geneva, he could have passed for 60 or even younger. Now, suddenly, he sounded 90 and on his last legs. I've called to tell you you'll get everything, he said. I've made sure you'll inherit the lot, but I want you to clear the house, Johnny. I want you to promise. And you mustn't touch anything yourself. Get a firman. Don't worry about the money. That's all been arranged. Steady on a moment, will you? I haven't got a clue what you're talking about. I'm talking about when I'm dead, of course. Get rid of it all. If I had my way, I'd burn the house down. But it's too late for that. This is crazy, Uncle Denny. Are you, are you trying to tell me you're ill? Not as far as I know. I just wanted to get things settled, that's all. You never know what's around the corner, do you? Especially at my age. You'll live to be a hundred. God forbid, he laughed then, and immediately he sounded more like himself. How are you, Johnny? I said I was fine, which I mostly was. I'd been working my way around to breaking the news of my divorce, but I didn't want to do it over the phone, and now didn't seem like the right time in any case. Uncle Denny had been fond of Ginny, and when I received the news of his death a week later, my first thought was one of relief, that at least now I wouldn't have to tell him my marriage was over. My second thought was that my uncle had predicted his own death. The thought made me go cold all over. South Shore was never a grand house, but it had a sizable chunk of land attached to it, and its westerly aspect meant that its narrow, high-ceilinged rooms were always full of the pearlescent, rain-coloured light that was particular to the estuary, even in summer. During the war, the house was requisitioned as a convalescent home for wounded soldiers. Afterwards, it was turned into a hotel. The business was successful for a while, but it began losing money in the mid-70s, and by the time my uncle bought the place, it had become run down almost to the point of dereliction. I knew that Uncle Denny had been married before, very briefly, to a woman named Lily Betts, but I was scarcely more than a toddler at the time, and I had no memory of her. It was Anka, of course, that I remembered. Anka was Danish, and some twenty years younger than my uncle. I don't know if Uncle Denny left Lily Betts to be with Anka, or whether his first marriage was over anyway. It was something that was never talked about. But my uncle often repeated the story of how Anka fell in love with Southshore at first sight. They were driving back to London after a day in the country, and Anka saw the house out of the window. She made my uncle stop the car, telling him this was the house she wanted to live in and that they had to buy it. Less than two hours later, Uncle Denny was putting his signature on a draft contact in an estate agent's office in Meldon. 
I think Anchor loved Eastern Essex because its level greenness and eroded coastline reminded her of Denmark. You say Essex and people think immediately of Ilford and Romford, the commercial wastelands of the London commuter belt. But the country around the Blackwater estuary is a flat, watery spread of narrow inlets and offshore islets, salt marshes and open grassland. Because of the constant steady ingress of tidal erosion, there is no coast road, and three of the four railway branch lines from Meldon were closed down during the beaching reforms. The place bears a mantle of secrecy. Anchor used to refer to it as her haven. I never questioned what drew her to my uncle. Lyndon Gauss was a handsome man, generous and sharp-witted. He was also a highly successful businessman. It was only after Anchor died that I wondered why they had never had children of their own. I suppose there must have been some physical obstacle, some gynecological complication. The idea of asking my uncle for details made me wince with embarrassment. I pulled my suitcase out of the car and onto the gravel. A playful breeze was tripping in off the mudflats, bringing with it the familiar dense reek of stranded bladder rack. The sky was wide, coloured with bands of cirrus, opalescent as a late turner. The house reared up before me like a mirage, like a faded Polaroid, and suddenly I felt emotions rising in me, a wave of feeling that could have been to do with my uncle's death, or with Ginny leaving, but that seemed to be connected with neither, that seemed to come from much further back, from that sun-drenched afternoon in late August, when I was summoned to the headmaster's office and told that both my parents had been drowned in the Victoria Ferry disaster. I paid off the cabbie and stood with my back turned as he drove away, not wanting him to see how shaken I was. Only when the taxi had passed completely out of earshot did I continue on up the drive and into the house. What with the place having been unoccupied for so long, I suppose I'd been prepared to find it in a bit of a state, but it was quite the opposite. The parquet looked recently polished, the air was filled with the scents of furniture wax and fresh chrysanthemums. There was a small stack of post on the hall table, all of it addressed to me, the various bills and legal permissions sent on to the house as promised by my uncle's solicitor in Meldon. Everything looked cared for, pristine, and I remembered that as well as the annual heating and plumbing inspections, Uncle Denny had employed a cleaner, some local woman from the village, to come in once a week to run a hoover and a duster around and generally keep an eye on the place. It must have cost him a small fortune over the years. It would have been cheaper to keep a pied a in London, not to say a great deal more convenient. I found myself wondering for the hundredth time why my uncle hadn't just sold the place and be done with it. I placed my luggage at the foot of the stairs and went through to the back. I felt on edge, rather, starting at the slightest sound, although what I was expecting to encounter I had no idea. My uncle's body had been cremated in Marseille, under the strict instructions that there should be no funeral service. He left a letter for me, apologising for his strange request, but pleading for my understanding. I can't stand the thought of it, he wrote. All those vultures standing around saying things they don't mean and polishing off the last of my sauterne, I don't want it, Johnny, and you and I know that the important things have already been said. I guess that when he spoke of the important things, he was referring to our final telephone conversation. Once more I felt that odd frisson of disquiet, that after calling me he had sat down and written that letter, knowing in some mysterious manner that we had talked together for the last time. 
I suppose the mystery was all in my head. There was nothing that unusual about an old man coming increasingly to realise that time was running out on him. If so-called psychic premonitions were what you were after, you only had to turn on the television or open a newspaper. What was harder for me to admit was how pleased I had been not to have to drag myself all the way down to the south of France to make stilted small talk with a bunch of strangers, to do all of it alone, without Ginny. It wouldn't have surprised me to discover my uncle had somehow known about that too, after all, and that his most likely reason for not wanting a funeral had been to spare me the trouble of attending it. The back rooms were as clean as the hall. In the kitchen, the pedal bin under the sink was fitted with a fresh liner, and the fridge and one of the overhead cupboards had been stocked with a small store of basic provisions. Had my uncle informed the cleaning woman that I would be coming? I put on the radio, tuning it to a jazz station I liked, then filled the kettle and spooned sugar and instant coffee into a mug. The mug was one of Anchor's, the Royal Copenhagen beakers she always used for hot drinks at bedtime or for Bovril when I was ill. The mugs were simple in form, straight white porcelain cylinders with a narrow gold band at the rim, but they were functional and elegant, and I had always loved them. The very act of handling one of them gave me a sense of coming home, though I had forgotten all about them until now. I waited for the kettle to boil, thinking how these few small acts of ownership, playing some music, making coffee, had already altered the atmosphere of the place, shifting it from the past into the present. I reminded myself that South Shore was mine now, not just the house, but everything in it. It was only then that I started to wonder about my uncle's odd instructions, the way he had insisted I dispose of everything. I'd not dwelt on his words at the time, mainly because I had other things on my mind, but also as I had not the slightest expectation of his dying. Now I was forced to ask myself what he had meant by it all. Surely he had not intended me to literally get rid of every last object in the house, the porcelain mugs, for instance. As I thought about this, I realised something I had not realised even five minutes before, that I did not want to get rid of the mugs, that they were important to me because of the memories they held, and selling them would be a betrayal. It would be like selling off a part of my past. South Shore would be full of such things, objects that contained within them the essence of my whole childhood, and of such deep personal significance that the idea of parting with them was unthinkable. I could not believe that this was what my uncle would have wanted. When my parents died, Uncle Denny did everything in his power to make a new and secure home for me at South Shore. I could not imagine him willfully forcing me to give up any part of it. I came to the conclusion that there was only one explanation for my uncle's request. There was something in the house that he hadn't wanted me to know about. He hadn't had time to remove it himself, and in his weakened condition, telling me to dispose of everything must have seemed a viable solution. I considered the obvious things, evidence of marital infidelity perhaps, or criminal activity, but found neither of them particularly convincing. It wasn't that I didn't think Uncle Denny capable of such misdemeanours. I tend towards the belief that anyone is capable of anything, given the right circumstances or incentive. It was just that they seemed insufficient grounds for such drastic action. Anchor was dead. It could hardly matter now if I happened to discover that half a lifetime ago my uncle had been unfaithful to her. The same logic would apply if he had once embezzled funds or even killed a man. He could hardly be made to answer for it now. I think it was then I decided I was not going to abide by my uncle's wishes. There was nothing about them in his will after all. 
Surely it was up to me now to decide how I wanted to dispose of my own property and to do so in my own good time. Beneath the avuncular exterior, Denny Gauss had been a powerful and determined individual, the kind of man who had grown used to getting his own way. I rationalised his last words to me as a failure of nerve, the fear of dying, which is, after all, the ultimate loss of control. I checked that the TV was working, made an omelette for supper, and as evening began to fall, I poured myself a glass of frascati from the bottle I had found in the fridge and went out into the garden. The wide lawns to the front of the house were kept regularly mown and trimmed, but Anchor had always insisted that the acreage at the back be left free to go wild. It was a large stretch of land, running all the way down to the sluggish, briny waters of the estuary, a riot of yarrow and thistle and stringy red campion. As a boy, I had found it enchanting. I turned to look back at the house and was surprised to see a light burning in one of the upper windows. I had been upstairs just briefly, to deposit my hold-all in the room I still could not help thinking of as my bedroom, but I didn't remember switching on any lights. I went slowly inside, placing my empty wine glass on the draining board and passing through to the hall. At the foot of the stairs, I hesitated. One of the house's anomalies and something my uncle had never got round to fixing was that you couldn't turn on the upstairs hall light from downstairs. As a child, I had always dreaded that blind rush up the darkened staircase to get to the light switch, a failure of nerve of my own that Anchor had occasionally liked to tease me about. Now, to my own wry amusement, I found that the fear had returned. There was a cupboard up there on the half landing, an odd little storeroom that during the day I had often used as a hideout, but that at night for some reason became terrifying in my imagination. As I crept past it now on my way to the shadowed recesses of the upper floor, the door to that cupboard seemed carved from pure blackness, the velvet rectangular entrance to an endless void. I reached the top of the stairs. As I fumbled for the light switch, I thought I caught a glimpse of a figure darting away from me along the landing. I drew in my breath, feeling not so much the threat of being attacked as the terror of being silently observed in a lonely place by someone I had not known was there. I was somehow convinced the figure had been a woman. Finally, I managed to get the lights on. Hello, I said, though my voice came out as a choked whisper. The landing was empty. The door to my room was standing slightly ajar. I crossed the landing and peered inside. The bedroom seemed as empty as the hallway. A vaporous tungsten light hung in the room's angles and corners, like shreds of spider silk, and through the top right-hand pane of the window I could see the flat white plate of the moon rising above the estuary. I told myself that this was the explanation, that the light I had seen from the garden was simply the moon's reflection in the window glass. I flicked the light switch by the door, banishing the moon to outer darkness, then closed the curtains and sat down on the bed. The room was the same, but different. The bed and the wardrobe occupied the same positions they had always done, but the glass-fronted bookcase had been moved to the opposite wall, and at some point during the years of my absence, someone had taken down the small framed aquatint of a steam train crossing a viaduct that had been in the room ever since I had been brought there on the evening following my parents' funeral. Years later, I discovered that the print was an original Revelius. The knowledge that my uncle had placed this valuable object in my room just because he thought I might like it 
that its colours and subject matter might be reassuring to me, and regardless of its monetary value, made me respect and love him all the more. The disappearance of the picture made me sad. I looked once more around the room, wondering what else might be missing. I leaned forward, running my hand over the polished walnut surface of the bedside cabinet, sliding out the little drawer, remembering how easily it flowed upon its runners at the start of every summer, how by September it would scarcely open, crammed solid as it was with the usual vacation detritus, paperback horror novels, half-filled exercise books, innumerable cellophane envelopes of foreign commemoratives. The drawer opened easily now. It seemed at first that there was nothing inside it at all. Then I noticed a single sheet of ruled notepaper, yellow with age and with a single line of writing across the top. My dearest Johnny, it read, today when I went to the village. It was Anka's writing. I knew it at once from the hundreds of notes and amusing postcards she had sent me when I was at school. There was no date, nothing to tell me exactly when it had been written, although I supposed it must have been shortly before she died, or I would have been bound to have come across it on a previous visit. I wondered what had made her stop writing the letter, what had happened to her in the village. She was still a young woman when she died, not yet fifty, and as I stopped being a child and passed into puberty, it was Anka who formed the basis of my first tentative and guilty sexual fantasies. It was not just that she was beautiful, with the pale skin and very fair hair typically associated with Scandinavians. She was also fun to be with, had a ribald sense of humour, and enjoyed playing practical jokes. Those girls of my own age that I encountered, the sisters of friends or day pupils at the school I attended, seemed with their chapped lips and adolescent inarticulacy to be ignorant and coarse by comparison, and in any case I had no idea how I might go about approaching one of them. Anka I could talk to and touch, because talking and touching had always been part of our relationship. I had even seen Anka naked once, when I barged into the bathroom just as she was stepping out of the shower. I was fourteen at the time, and had never seen a naked woman outside of the fleeting glimpses offered to me by the airbrushed photographs and the lad mags that some of the senior boys kept stashed in their lockers. My cheeks flared up like a forest fire, but Anka just laughed and coiled herself sedately in a pale blue towel. There was also a second incident, soon after my sixteenth birthday. I was in bed with a summer cold and feeling rather sorry for myself. Uncle Denny, as so often, was away on business, but Anka kept me well entertained, and I found I was glad we had the house to ourselves. I sensed a new dimension in our togetherness, something that had not been there before, something exciting and vaguely dangerous. One afternoon, we'd been eating our lunch off trays and listening to the radio, Anka slipped off her sandals and climbed up on the bed with me. She leaned back against the headboard, her eyes closed, her shoulder pressing lightly against mine, as she began telling me about the people she had known, the life she led in Denmark before she met my Uncle Denny and came to England. I was an artist, a sculptor, she said. I bet you didn't know that, did you? My bronze of the young Lucifer won first prize at my graduation show. Shall I open the window wider? You're feeling a little feverish. She rested her hand against my forehead, as if to check my temperature, then moved it slowly across my face, stroking my lips and eyelids with the tips of her fingers. You know, it's strange, but you remind me a little of my Lucifer. It's something about your mouth, I think. You have a beautiful mouth, Johnny, 
Did you know that? Your lips are fuller than the lips of most men. They are like rose petals. She pressed her palm against my mouth, then slid her hand sideways so that her little finger rested in the crack between my lips. Her other hand, whether by accident or on purpose I did not know, was pressing down on the duvet close by my groin. Sweat burst out on my forehead and under my arms, and my penis began to get hard. I lay there, motionless apart from my swelling member, frantically insisting to myself that whatever happened next would be all right, because Anka was not really my aunt. She was just my uncle's wife, and my uncle's second wife at that. Then suddenly the pressure on the bedclothes vanished and she was gone. I heard her running lightly downstairs, and then seconds later the sound of car wheels crunching on gravel. I remembered then that Uncle Denny was due back from Amsterdam that evening. Apparently he had caught an earlier flight. Everything seemed normal at dinner. Uncle Denny was in a talkative, jokey mood as he often was after a trip, and Anka played along just like always. But at some point during the night I was woken by the sound of them arguing. You're not to touch the boy, said Uncle Denny. He sounded cold, angry, utterly unlike himself. Your precious brother's precious son, Anka said. She made a strange noise, something between a cry and a laugh, and then fell silent. I think my uncle might even have struck her. It was the only time I ever heard them fighting, and for some reason it terrified me. I screwed my eyes shut and pulled up the covers, trying to block out not just the sounds but the sense of what was happening. A short time after that, I went back to sleep. My uncle left on business again three days later. I both hoped and feared that Anka would use this opportunity to pick up where she had left off, but in fact she acted as if the whole strange episode had never happened. I watched Newsnight and then went to bed. I thought of phoning Jenny to let her know where I was should she need to contact me, but in the end I decided against it. I knew I was just looking for excuses to call her. If Jenny needed me for any reason, she would ring my mobile. I thought I'd have trouble sleeping, but the worry proved groundless. I woke just after eight, feeling rested and curiously optimistic about things, filled with a sense of well-being I hadn't experienced in months, and certainly not since Jenny moved out. I suppose the change of scene was doing me good. I ate breakfast in the kitchen and afterwards began my inspection of the house. I'd planned to make a detailed inventory, but I quickly realised that such a task would take me weeks and possibly months to complete. It wasn't just the number of things, it was the difficulty of categorising them. Some, like the Macintosh chair in my uncle's office and Anker's pretty little Sheraton writing desk, were valuable antiques that I knew should be put into secure storage until I decided what I wanted to do with them. Others, my uncle's books, the photographs of him and my father as students at Oxford, were less of a worry in financial terms, but no less vital in the matter of what they meant to me personally. The problem was, it was all of a piece. It was not the individual objects that carried significance, so much as South Shore as a whole, as an entity. I wandered through the rooms, picking things up and putting them down again, and the longer I went on, the less I felt able to make a firm decision about anything. I began to develop a theory that there was no secret hidden in the house, just this poignant physical detritus of times passing. I could keep everything or keep nothing. It would make no difference. The time had come to let it go, to turn it over to the auctioneers. My uncle's odd request was really quite simple. He had wanted me to let the house die with him. This idea was so liberating, it was like a weight being lifted from me. If I'd been the kind of person that believes in ghosts, I might also have concluded that Uncle Denny was somewhere close by and approving my decision. But in reality, 
I supposed it was simply the relief that comes with any resolution of a difficult problem. I had decided, in effect, to give up on it, and I was glad. I heated some soup for lunch and reviewed my plans. I'd reckoned on being at South Shore for some weeks. There were a couple of sales I would need to attend later in the month, but other than that, my business did not necessitate me being in London. Indeed, I had welcomed the time away as an opportunity to take stock, to recuperate at least in part from the aftermath of my breakup with Ginny. In the light of recent events, however, there seemed little point in staying on. A day or two should now be sufficient, just long enough for me to organise the removal and storage of the more valuable pictures and furniture. I also wanted, if I could, to contact the cleaning woman my uncle had hired and arrange for her to continue her weekly visits. The rest could stay as it was until the house was sold. There were a few things, some small keepsakes, that I wanted to take back to London with me. But these were barely enough to fill a cardboard box, and I thought I would probably find one of those in the store cupboard on the landing. I went to look, but discovered the door to the cupboard was locked. I could not remember it ever being locked in the past, but dismissed this as a minor annoyance. The key would be here in the house somewhere. It was bound to be. I could hunt for it later. I washed up the dishes and tidied the kitchen, then decided I would take a walk into the village. St. Lawrence didn't offer much in the way of shopping facilities, but there was a post office and general store which sold most of the basics, enough to tide me over until I left. I also felt the need for some fresh air. I had been stuck inside all morning, and it wasn't until I opened the front door that I realised how bright and warm the day was. I took the shortcut into the village, a narrow footpath skirting fields and then cutting down through the new estate into what passed for the high street. Like my bedroom at South Shore, the village was the same, and yet different. The pub had been completely refurbished. The telephone box by the garage had disappeared. The post office store, though, was still there, and still doing business. Did you find everything you needed? said the woman behind the counter. We were ever so sorry to hear about your uncle. Yes, thank you, I said. At least he had a good innings. I smiled, doing my best to seem friendly, but not wanting to get drawn into conversation. Although I knew it was inevitable, I still found I couldn't get used to the idea of people talking about me behind my back. I was glad I had already made the decision to go back to London. We were all quite shocked, actually, the woman persisted, especially as Annie said she saw him the other week. I stared at her, not comprehending. What on earth do you mean? The woman shrugged, looking uncomfortable. Anne Muller is the lady who does the cleaning. She saw lights on up at the house. She thought your uncle was back for good. I'd like to have a word with Miss Mellors, actually, I said. I'd be grateful if you'd ask her to call. I gathered up my purchases and left, not waiting for the woman to reply. I knew my behaviour would seem rude to her, but I felt unable and unwilling to excuse myself. Not only were the locals talking about me, they were trying to make fun of me too. Perhaps it was something they did to all Londoners. I wouldn't have minded that so much. I was leaving anyway. What enraged me about their little haunted house joke was that it had been made at my uncle's expense. I even found myself wondering if it had been this Mrs. Mellors who had somehow switched on the upstairs light the evening of my arrival. But of course that was stupid. In any case, if they were trying to scare me, they would have to do better than that. I stormed back across the fields feeling furious and wondering how I could get my own back, but by the time I reached the house, my anger had cooled. In a year, the house would be sold and none of this would matter anyway. I resolved to forget all about it. I booted up the computer in my uncle's office so I could check my emails and deal with some of the most urgent correspondence, then spent the rest of the evening watching television. 
I went to bed at around one o'clock, so tired that I fell asleep with the light on. Half an hour later, I woke with a start, unsure for a moment of where I was, and then uncomfortably aware of the lamp shining full on my face. I leaned over to switch it off, and in the fleeting afterglow, I caught a glimpse of a woman standing beside the bed. I snapped the light back on immediately, but there was no one there. I fell asleep again and dreamed of Ginny, a row that ended in sex, a petulant, angry coupling that felt like a continuation of our fight. As I struggled in her arms, I became aware that strands of her hair had become caught on my shirt buttons, that I was tied to her and could not get loose. The hair, though, was not short and dark like Ginny's own, but long and light, glass-coloured, and as I looked down at her, spread on the... Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Bed. I saw the woman I was with was not Ginny after all, but Anka. I tried to roll away but there was no room to move. It's okay, Anka said. She reached up and touched the side of my face. It's okay, Johnny. I could hear her voice so clearly it was as if she was actually there in the room with me, and I could smell her breath, the woody, aniseed scent of a particular garden herb she liked to nibble. Her hands gripped my buttocks, pulling me astride her. I bent to kiss her, grinding my mouth down on hers and closing my eyes. I came almost at once. Jenny and I hadn't made love in almost three months, and my orgasm hit me so hard it was like hoofbeats against my skull. I tried to wake up, then realized I was already awake. The inside of my thigh was sticky with semen. I waited for it to get properly light, and then I called Jenny. Don't laugh at me, Jin, I said, but I think the place is haunted. She sighed. What are you calling for, Johnny? I thought we agreed. It was strange, but the sound of her voice, so familiar, so familiarly irritated, was enough to bring me back to reality. It was also enough to remind me that the Ginny I still missed was not the Ginny that now actually existed, 
no matter how much I tried to fool myself. The connection between us was broken. It had been stupid to call. I'm sorry, I said. It's just a bit weird, I suppose, being back here after all this time. And I'm sorry about your uncle. He was a nice man. Go back to London, Johnny. You can leave all this stuff to the lawyers. Make them earn their fee for a change. That's what he said too. Uncle Denny, I mean. Well, there you are then. There seemed nothing more to be said. I said goodbye and ended the call. I felt both wretched and foolish. Wretched for having to be reminded yet again that it was over between us. Foolish because if I'd wanted to look an idiot, then calling my ex-wife at the crack of dawn and raving about ghosts seemed the perfect way of going about it. I got myself up and dressed, then called the solicitor in Meldon and told him it was my intention to sell the house as soon as it had passed through probate. When he asked if I intended to live there or rent it out in the meantime, I said no. I added that I was concerned about my uncle's pictures and asked if he could recommend anyone to store them for me. I'm glad you brought that up, he said. The current period of insurance has almost expired, and the policy your uncle put in place is very expensive. It would make a lot of sense to put the paintings and antiques under separate cover. He said he would email me some details later that morning. When I had finished dealing with the solicitor, I began gathering together those few of my uncle's possessions that I intended to take back with me to London. There weren't many. The two days I had spent rifling through drawers and cupboards and picking over the remnants of the past had given me a distaste for the whole business, and I was tempted to leave as I had come, empty-handed. In the end, though, I knew there were some things I would regret forever if I didn't save them, and it was these things, the university photographs, the pictures of my parents on their wedding day, an early pastel by Ivan Hitchens, the six Royal Copenhagen mugs, that I put together on the kitchen table, ready to pack. This brought me once again to the problem of what to pack them in. There were some bin liners under the sink, and in the underseer's cupboard I found an old nylon carry bag Anka had always used for her vegetable shopping, but neither of these were really suitable, and I resigned myself to hunting down the key to the locked store cupboard. I began at the top of the house, with the ebony bureau in Anka's old dressing room, and worked my way down from there. It was not a pleasant task. Most of the things in Anka's room had clearly not been touched since her death, and my fumbling among her underwear and jewellery had a feel of grave robbery about it. In any case, the key was not there. Neither was it in my uncle's games table, nor in the fifty-drawer apothecary's chest at the end of the hall, nor was it in the bathroom medicine cabinet, nor in any of the dozen or so cupboards or chests or chiffoniers in the three main guest bedrooms. I nearly gave up at that point, and had it not been for my dislike of being beaten, I almost certainly would have done. In any case, I decided I had been coming at the problem from the wrong angle, concentrating on the where instead of the who. Given that Anka had died before him, the person most likely to have locked the cupboard was my Uncle Denny. It seemed odd and not a little ironic that the one room I hadn't looked in so far was my uncle's office. I made a cursory search of the bookshelves and the large wooden filing cabinet and then began to go through his desk. There wasn't much there, of course. All his legal papers and anything concerning his business activities had been packed up and removed to the Marseille house a decade ago. But, if anything, that made the things that were left behind seem all the more poignant. There was a stack of my old school reports, a postcard I'd sent to him in Anchor during a class trip to the Norfolk Broads, my uncle's onyx inkwell, the letter opener in the shape of a crocodile that I once coveted so much I stole it, only to smuggle it back into his desk during the black-coated small hours of the following morning. And there, 
in the secret drawer that had stopped being a secret when Anka showed me how to open it by pressing and then sliding a certain piece of the lustrous Mabel marquetry were my uncle's stamps. Uncle Denny always used to joke that he gave up serious collecting on the day I first outbid him at an auction. This is where I throw in the towel, he said. Time to leave it to the professionals. We were drinking champagne at the bar of some hotel in Knightsbridge, celebrating my Trinidad Red. Uncle Denny was still based mostly in London then, still living at South Shore. Anchor was still alive. I laughed and protested. He had taught me everything I knew, that the game would be no fun without him. But it's not a game for you, though, is it, Johnny? That's where you and I differ, and that's why I'm getting out now. He was right in a way, I suppose. Philately had always been my uncle's hobby, a break from the jet-powered world of international investments, a place where he could occasionally be foolish and let down his guard. Whereas I had chosen to pour my own modest accretion of what Anker called the Gauss instinct for moral suicide into the peculiar business of buying and selling stamps. It was true that Uncle Denny had taught me a lot, but at some point it was inevitable that I would overtake him. I felt sad when I found the album, but at the same time it made me smile. I always liked to think that Uncle Denny had not given up the game entirely, that he still made the occasional purchase on the sly. Now it appeared that my suspicions had been correct. It was just a slim album, and the most of what it contained was, if not second-rate, then unexceptional. Issues my uncle had kept, I suspected, more for sentimental reasons than out of any hope that their value would ever increase. There were a couple of nice things, though. A Gargarin first-day cover displaying the famous Yellow Vostok era, a Hitler skull stamp that I thought was almost certainly genuine, a strip of three fifty-cent McKillops, an artist commemorative that showed the complete New York skyline, including the Twin Towers, issued at the end of August 2001, then hurriedly recalled on September the 12th. It was an odd little collection, with something of the macabre about it. I turned the page, curious about what else might have taken his fancy. There was a yellow Romanian beetle stamp with three torn perforations, an unfranked Limoges blue, and a stamp with Anker's face on it. I did not recognise her at first. What caught my attention was the sight of a stamp I had never seen before. I leaned forward to get a closer look, then examined it through the magnifying loop I always carry in my right breast pocket. The stamp was Danish, and of a relatively scarce denomination. Its design featured the face of a woman, a detail from an oil painting. The woman looked familiar, and because I was seeing her out of context, I wondered at first if it was some opera singer or minor film star that I was looking at. Then suddenly I realised it was Anka, her exact likeness. The artist's name, Mikkelsen, was printed in silver along the stamp's left-hand margin. I'd never heard of him, but that did not surprise me. It was my uncle that knew about art. I fetched my uncle's gibbons, still in his old place on the top of the filing cabinet, and began leafing through. It was an old edition, 15 years out of date at least, but the stamp was not a new issue, and it didn't take me long to find the listing. The stamp was one of a set of five, issued in 1966 to commemorate the art of Anna Mikkelsen. The other stamps in the set featured a white castle, a raven with a rose in its beak, a flying horse, and a wizened witch with agate green eyes. The stamps were listed as common. In view of that, it seemed odd that they were unknown to me. Gibbons had nothing to say about Mikkelsen, of course, but a brief search online told me that he had been an artist and book illustrator made popular throughout Scandinavia for his representations of subjects from Norse mythology. 
He died in 1950. The centenary of his birth in 1966 was marked by the issue of the five commemorative stamps, together with a lavishly illustrated catalogue of his work entitled Phantasme. It took me a little more time to unearth the original paintings, but in the end I found what I was looking for on a website published by a Danish museum. The woman depicted on the stamp I was coming to think of as Anker's stamp was Marianne, a beautiful succubus who, according to legend, had enticed and then enslaved a number of powerful merchants and princes in Copenhagen, wearing them away to madness and then to dust. The painting was called The Muse of Copenhagen. My first assumption was that Anker had been Mikkelsen's model, but I now knew that this was impossible. Mikkelsen had died before Anker was born. Her mother, then, or grandmother, I realised I knew nothing at all about Anker's background. What puzzled me most was why Uncle Denny had never told me about the stamp, had never shown it to me. It crossed my mind that it was this, after all, that my uncle had been wanting to hide from me, that the stamp was the secret. I reached for the idea, but it eluded me. None of it made any sense. Suddenly I felt very tired. I switched off the computer and closed my eyes. My head drooped forward on my chest as I listened to the quiet sounds the house made when it was resting, the sighing of the floorboards, the rattle of steam in the hot water pipes, the sly whisper from the open chimney. When I first came to South Shore as a child, I was disappointed not to hear the sound of the sea, but Anka told me it was because of the marshes. The water is heavy with sand, she said. The sand steals its voice. Her words haunted me for a long time. I found I was unable to rid myself of the image of old Father Neptune, his beard clogged with mud, his throat choked with the dark, glistening quicksand of the Blackwater estuary. I dozed where I sat, not quite conscious, the pale fingers of the dying autumn brushing my face. I told myself I mustn't drop off. There were still things I needed to do before I left. A hand was gripping my shoulder. I jerked awake. Johnny, she said. You look just like a naughty schoolboy, falling asleep in your seat at the back of the class. She sank to her knees at my feet. Slowly I reached out for her, burying my hands to the wrists in her glass-coloured hair. Time passed then, but I don't know how much. Hours or days, possibly weeks. I know that on the morning after Anka first came to me, a woman arrived at the house and that following a moment's panicked confusion, I realised it must be the Mrs. Mellors my uncle had employed to do the cleaning. I remembered that I had asked to see her, but couldn't recall exactly when that had been. She asked if I would be wanting to keep her on, and I said yes. I also asked her if she could get in some shopping. When she asked what I would like her to buy, my mind went completely blank. I knew I probably needed food, but I didn't feel hungry. Just get what you got before, I said. It doesn't matter. Anything you like. She looked at me strangely, but she took the money I offered and returned an hour or so later with three bags of groceries. I don't remember seeing her again. During the days I sorted through my uncle's possessions, arranging his letters and date order, cataloguing his pictures. These tasks absorbed me while I was engaged in them, but afterwards I often had the sense of working in circles, repeating a thing incessantly with no hope of ever bringing it to completion. Anchor was both there and not there. Sometimes she was physically present. At other times I was aware of her only as a kind of itching in the back of my mind, the sense that she was close by but could not be seen. Sometimes she brought me tea in the porcelain mugs, and when I mentioned that it tasted odd, she said it was fennel tea, 
made from the herb in the garden that she liked to chew. It's good for you, she said. It will clear up those scabs on your arms. I told her there were no scabs on my arms, but when I took off my shirt that night, I saw she was right, that the skin of my forearms had become dry and abraded, its surface busy with small red lesions. It's the damp climate, Anker said. It's nothing to worry about. As the days grew shorter, I felt listless and sad, but in bed with her, I never seemed to tire. In the afternoons, I dozed on the bookroom sofa. One afternoon, towards the end of November, I awoke out of troubled dreams to the knowledge that I was in the house alone. I opened the kitchen door and looked out, certain that I would see Anka down by the water, as I often did, foraging for herbs or simply standing with folded arms, gazing out over the estuary. I asked her once if she was looking towards Denmark, but she just laughed and said she had been in England so long she had more or less forgotten what Denmark was like. On that day, though, there was no sign of her. There was just the grey water, the grey water and the grey sky, folded together like one grey blanket on top of another. I should go, I thought, but the idea refused to take hold. I closed the door and came back inside. There on the table in front of me was the missing Revilius, the little steam train crossing its viaduct in the winter twilight. I picked it up, mystified as to how it had got there, then turned it over to look at the back. The picture itself appeared undamaged, but someone had scrawled some words on the hardboard backing. The felt-tip marker that had been used to write them was lying uncapped on the floor under the table. Johnny, I read. The key. The key to what, I thought. Key to the problem? Key to the road map? Key to the door? It was my uncle's writing, I knew that. But Uncle Denny was dead. He had been dead for weeks now, for months, possibly years. Like a mud dredger churning the sands of the estuary, I scoured my mind for a memory, the memory of my search for the key to the locked store cupboard. The cupboard had not been locked before, but now it was. I never did find the key. I had stopped looking when I found Anker's stamp. I went groggily up the stairs to the half landing, convinced that when I reached the little storeroom I would find it open. It wasn't, though. It was locked, just as before. I took hold of the handle and shook it, rattling the door in its frame. The lock held firm. I stood back from the door, aiming a hefty kick at its lower panel. Pain coursed up through my leg, curling itself in a ball when it reached my knee. I felt weak from fatigue, as if I had just climbed a mountain. Aside from my ferocious couplings with anchor, it had been a long time since I attempted anything more strenuous than changing my location from one silent room to another. I retraced my steps to the kitchen. In the cupboard under the sink, there was a rubber plunger and a small assortment of household tools, a pair of pliers, a steel claw hammer, two screwdrivers. I took the hammer and the heavier of the screwdrivers and went back up the stairs. Somehow I managed to jam the flattened tip of the screwdriver into the narrow space between the door and its frame. I worked it into the crack until it held firm, then struck out with the hammer as hard as I could. It missed the screwdriver by a couple of inches, bludgeoning the doorframe with a resounding crack. A long, pale splinter of wood dropped to the floor. I froze, terrified that Anker would sense what I was doing and appear at my side. When nothing happened, I tried again, this time bringing the hammer down squarely on the handle of the screwdriver. There was a tense, splintering sound, and after a couple more blows, the lock gave way. 
I was drenched in sweat, my shirt clinging to my back in damp patches. I remembered stories that had thrilled me as a boy, adventure yarns by Rice Burrows and Ryder Haggard, in which men left for dead and half-blinded by madness stumble on an oasis in the desert, outrunning the demons of sunlight and thirst by a hair's breadth miracle. But this was no oasis. This was a cupboard, and the inside of the cupboard was as I remembered. There was one small window, high in the exterior wall. Watery light ran through it, revealing to me a stack of mildewed suitcases, the cardboard packing cartons I had been so keen to get my hands on, and the large blanket chest that had always been used for storing spare bed linen. The blanket chest was made from antique pine. Anchor had brought it with her from Copenhagen. I lifted the lid. The body of the chest was filled with dried fennel stalks, a deep layer of them. An odour rose up, the pungent, aniseed scent of the tea Anchor made, but intensified to the point of foulness. Nestled side by side in the straw were two humped, pale objects, each about the size of a melon. I picked up the one nearest to me. It was dry to the touch and light as balsa. As I lifted it closer, the rank smell of the fennel intensified. It was an animal of some sort, or at least it had been. What remained was a desiccated husk, the shriveled limbs drawn up, bunched together like the limbs of a fetus. The skin crackled where I touched it, like cellophane, a mass of parched wrinkles. I turned it over. The thing's mouth was partly open, revealing a horde of pointed yellow teeth. They seemed too many, those teeth, and needle-fine, crammed inside the mouth like splinters, the teeth of some small but particularly unpleasant carnivore. The thing's face was shrunken as a raisin and mottled with liver spots, but still I found no trouble in recognising the face of my Uncle Denny. As I stood there gazing down at him, one tiny foot kicked out feebly, blood warm against the hollow of my palm. I sprang back, horrified, hurling the thing to the ground. It rolled rapidly away from me, disappearing beneath the mound of suitcases. A moment later I heard it scrabbling frantically for purchase as it tried to right itself. I shoved the chest backwards against the wall, trapping the loathsome creature in the space behind. I began shifting the cardboard boxes, using them to form a barricade around the blanket chest. Then I went downstairs to fetch some kindling. There had been a stack of newspapers in the kitchen, but they seemed to have disappeared, and I suppose Mrs. Mellors had taken them for recycling. In the end, I used what remained of my uncle's papers, tearing them into strips and stuffing them into the spaces between the cartons. I worked as quickly as I could. I knew I didn't have much time. I left the house by the back door, cutting down through the garden, then striking out across the water meadows. I struggled over the unkempt ground for a mile or so, then rejoined the road. My shoes were sodden through, the lower portion of my trousers streaked with mud. The sun was going down by then, a glaucous orange, glistening on the still water of the estuary like spilled syrup. The light of the rising fire was small by comparison, although I had no doubt that as the darkness deepened, its power would grow. I managed to hitch a lift as far as Meldon, where I spent the night in a bed and breakfast before travelling back to London the following day. Late in the afternoon I received a phone call from my uncle's solicitor, informing me that Southshore had burned to the ground. I'm afraid it looks like arson, he said. Local youths, probably. 
I know this must be very upsetting, but I'm happy to tell you at least you're still fully insured. I wanted to ask if anything had escaped the conflagration, but I did not quite dare. I hoped the silence from my end of the line would be taken for shock. A week before Christmas, I attended a stamp fair in Basel, where I was able to acquire a complete set of the Mikkelsen commemoratives. The dealer was Danish. We discovered we had acquaintances in common. The stamp world is a small and sometimes uncomfortably intimate one, and quickly found plenty to talk about. He seemed fascinated by my interest in the Mikkelsen painting, and invited me out to stay with him and his family in Copenhagen the following summer, so that he could take me to the National Gallery and show me the original. The muse is really very powerful, he said to me. She has this energy about her, you know, an internal fire. I visit her quite often, actually. Sometimes I think she's going to step right out of the painting. He laughed, and I laughed too. I thanked him for his invitation and told him I would be delighted to accept. Thank you, Nina. Nina has had stories in the anthologies Subtle Edens, Catastrophia, Never Again, Strange Tales from Tartarus, and House of Fear. She is a regular contributor to the magazines Interzone and Black Static, and has twice been shortlisted for the British Fantasy Award and the BSFA Award. Her story, Angelus, won the Aeon Award in 2007, and somebody once told me I had pronounced that incorrectly the last time I had to pronounce it, and I probably did it again tonight. Her story, The Lama's Worm, was selected by Ellen Datlow for her Best Horror of the Year 2. Her short story fiction collection, A Thread of Truth, was published by Ibanvale Press in 2007, and that was followed by her story cycle, The Silver Wind, in 2011. Her next book, Stardust, the Ruby Castle Stories, will be available from P.S. Publishing in autumn 2012. That's now. Hmm. Currently, Nina is working on her first novel. The Muse of Copenhagen was read for us tonight by New Zealand author-narrator Dan Raybarts. Dan is a speculative fiction writer, sometimes narrator of podcasts, obviously an occasional sailor of things that sail, one would hope, and the father of two wee miracles, as he calls the smaller Raybarts, and they all live in a little house on a hill under the southern sun. He has twice been a finalist for New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award, both for fiction and non-fiction. He's had short fiction published or is forthcoming in such venues as Andromeda, Spaceways, In-Flight Magazine, the urban horror anthology Bloodstones, and the Wiley Writers Podcast. In addition to reading for us tonight, his narrations can be heard on the Starship Sofa, Wiley Writers, and forthcomingly at Crime City Central. You can find him on the web at dan.raybarts.com. That's R-A-B-A-R-T-S. dan.raybarts.com. And... Golly willikers, children of the night, remember the black hole sale of Starship goodies. Click on the link on our homepage and have a look. 
There's goodness galore there. And don't forget the book. Go, click, buy, read, love. And it makes a great gift, too. Jumping back a bit, I have been somewhat remiss of late uh, in previous shows, and in this one, I have failed to mention our ten terrifying minutes offer. What is ten terrifying minutes, you ask? See, I've been remiss. If you're a writer and you want to promote your latest book, novella, story, et al., record ten minutes of it. Clean it up. No, no, do not remove the cussing and the bloodletting. Just make a nice, clean recording of it. Give us a bit of an introduction, then send it to us. Send it to tales to terrify at gmail.com and put ten terrifying minutes in the subject line of the email, and we will air it. And in the spirit of that offer, I am going to spin the next disc for all you bad boys and girls out there in the dark. If you think that a lump of coal in your stocking is just about the thing for Christmas, here's someone to dream about for the next month. The Krampus. It's from the album Another Creepy Christmas. And it is by and performed by one Jonah Knight. Jonah, hit it. St. Nicholas is a good man Rewarding your purity And his hide will keep him warm 
back to his cave with children for supper on Christmas Day. is a good man Spreading hope from the light And the Krampus is an evil man Sowing panic in the night And so next Christmas time Please keep this in your mind Hold hate in your heart It'll shine like a beacon on Christmas Day told he's making a list he's checking it twice you can audition the album and of course buy a copy of jonah's another creepy christmas at http colon slash slash www.jonahofthesea.com and when you get there have a listen to jonah's reimagined santa claus is coming <laughs> Thanks for that, Jonah. Well, that will just about do it for this week. Remember, books, contributions, uh, yes, say nice things about us on iTunes. Go to the forum, let us know how we're doing, and wish for my cold to get better. Cecilia's had hers for a week and a half now. Next week, ah, uh, next week, we'll have a really big show. You'll see. Ah, aha, ha, 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 what is this? News, news has just arrived. If you are even marginally interested in getting Tales to Terrify, Volume 1, this weekend is the weekend to do it. Lulu, the print-on-demand publisher of the book, is offering you a deal. Starting today... Friday, November 23rd, and ending on Tuesday, November 27, Lulu is offering 30% off any and everything site-wide. Go to Lulu, and once you've chosen Tales to Terrify Volume 1, type in the coupon code. I'm going to give it to you now. Write it down. I'll wait till you get a pencil. Okay, you ready? Here's the coupon code. It is D-E-L-I-R-I-T-A-S. I will not try to say it. Once again, I'll repeat. D-E-L-I-R-I-T-A-S. A-S. Now, put that in all capital letters when you order, and you can get Volume 1 for 30% off. 
So there. So now, be up and doing, be bright and chipper. On your way home, remember, you've got only one month to amend your ways and make sure you're on the right list, because you do not want to be on the Grampuses. Scoot home now, children. Scoot, scoot. The night has gone cozy again. Winter, alas, postponed. Still, it's, it's, it's dark out there. And the people, most of the people in the neighborhood, they're gone. Gone for this long weekend, so it's quiet in this part of the city. And if the bushes crackle, it's probably just, just a breeze. There's not much moon tonight, so the things that range the world in Holiday Eve are all astir and hungry. <laughs> You'll make it home. And when you do, gargle with salt water. Don't touch your eyes and your mouths before you wash your hands. You've been near me, and I am diseased. I may still be catching. And when you hit the hay, as my granddad used to say... Think thoughts of merriment and of leftovers and stamp collections and dried husks in drawers and caskets and Krampuses and, of course, slip into some pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.